Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks for listening in on another episode. Or if this is your first time stopping by, I'm grateful to have you. This podcast is all about the getting started moments, the turning points that got each guest started on a new path toward happiness, the ups and downs of the journey, how they were able to commit to a change, and all the lessons learned along the way. I hope you all enjoyed this particular episode, so let's jump right in and get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Dr. Mike Rucker, who is an organizational psychologist, behavioral scientist, and charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. He has been academically published in publications like the International Journal of Workplace Health Management. His ideas about fun and health have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Fast Company, Forbes, Vox, Thrive Global, Mindful, Mind Body Green, and more. He currently serves as a senior leader at Active Wellness and is the author of the upcoming book, The Fun Habit, which is available in January of 2023. I hope you all enjoy this conversation. And without further ado, please welcome in Dr. Mike Rucker. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you, man. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is exciting. Always nice to talk with other folks that live in the state. So uh, I know you and I aren't too far from one another. So uh, always nice. And we're getting some hot weather this week. So uh, I'm glad we're indoors for the time being recording this because it's like 90 outside right now. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to get in, you know, there's a lot of things I did some research um, coming in this conversation. And I'm really interested. Obviously, I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the book that's coming out the fun habit, because, you know, fun, I talk a lot about happiness. I know we may differ in some opinions on that, which will be interesting. But, I, you know, fun's obviously uh, something I'm curious to learn more about and how you define it. But before we get there, I want to take a big step back, because, you know, being the Just Get Started podcast, those getting started moments, you know, everyone that listens in or that comes on here, we all have varying ways we got to where we are today. Generally, there's serendipity involved. Generally, there's some ideation and it, it takes a while maybe to get to the next step. But I'm curious for you, is there one moment, and maybe you pick more than one, but is there one moment that you could recall on that was a big turning point for you to kind of get down this path in life than maybe another one that you might have been on? Yeah, so I did my homework as well. So I, I, I knew that this question was likely coming. And, you know, oftentimes the pivot for the book was the death of my younger brother, right? And so I think, you know, I've talked about that at length, and it's an important, um, you know, moment with regards to, you know, my time here on earth. But um, one that's a little bit more remarkable that didn't seem like it was at the time. Um, but now I think, you know, looking back at it, especially as people have asked me about it and asked me to unpack it, um, was in 2007, um, I had, uh, and well, before that I had exited a successful, um, marketing company. So I had a pretty successful entrepreneurial exit. Mm -hmm. And then I got involved in a restaurant venture in Manhattan beach and that went completely sideways. And so, um, you know, I had a big high and then I had a big low and I had to go back to work because, um, that's what you do when, you know, you lose all your poker chips. So, um, it was, you know, a time of reckoning I'd like, okay, here, I thought, you know, I was a big Willie and I, you know, I was going to succeed at every entrepreneurial, um, endeavor. Um, and then, you know, had to face the fact that, you know, failure is part of life. Um, but didn't want to lose the aspect 
of what really lit me up, and that was entrepreneurship, and then also facets of well-being. Um, you know, specifically positive psychology and um, and the quantified self movement that was sort of budding at that time. And so I started something called the Live Life Love Project, which is essentially my website. Um, you know, the the term is more of a construct; it's not really a thing. But it was a way to launch a blog back in 2007, where I committed to interviewing two interesting people every quarter, one in entrepreneurship and one in some facet of well-being. Um, and then I wanted to do something um, interesting, you know, so that I'd have something to talk about. And then I also wanted to contribute um, at least a year of my life to something other than myself. Mm-hmm. And so the rules were pretty simple. You know, I just committed to checking in with my friends and family um, every three months and, you know, saying how I was doing in those, um, four areas and I'm still doing it. And so I think that's, what's sort of remarkable is that it was this simple intention, you know, that, um, I set, you know, what, uh, almost 15 years ago, but the fact that I stuck with it, um, and that the bar was pretty low with sticking with it, but now, uh, you know, I've learned from over a hundred amazing thought leaders, you know, uh, Tim Ferris, Gary V, like all these folks, um, just because I, you know, kind of sent this ripple out into the universe um, has led to, you know, where I am today, you know, which is eventually, you know, getting this book deal with Simon Schuster and being able to, you know, share openly, um, you know, some of the things I picked up along the way. So I would say that that was it, you know, just a simple like, hey, I don't want to lose sight of myself, even though I'm going to have to pick up the pieces of this failed venture and, you know, just actually doing something. How did you know, and I know sometimes it's so hard for us to remember, maybe you have some blogs you've written back then that, mm-hmm. that help you, but, you know, back in 07, like, so when that failed venture happened, what was the period of time between that happening and then making this decision like, hey, I want to go on this journey for the next 25 years and document, was that pretty much around the same time or was there a gap oh, there? Yeah, I think it was really... Um, you know, again, like the intention wasn't meant to be spectacular. So sometimes it's, um, you know, this compound effect, right. Of, uh, you know, really just wanting to do something small, but then sticking with it and allowing it to snowball. And so, I mean, it was really just not wanting to lose that connection with, um, some of the things that I loved, um, while I had to go back and, you know, really get myself back together. And so, it wasn't meant to be spectacular, like this huge undertaking, you know, that that required a lot because I couldn't commit to that. Right. I was going back to work for somebody else full time. It was really meant to do what is it that I can do today that will still move me forward and that I can commit to. And that won't be such an audacious goal that, you know, um, uh, that I won't be able to execute on it. Do you think back, you know, when, so again, we go to that 07 timeframe, like getting, did you have an idea like, okay, I'm going to go work for, you know, kind of corporate America again, but you know, I'd love to get back to entrepreneurship at X time. Like, did you put any time clock or was it more just, you know, I'm going to kind of swallow the, you know, the pride a little bit here and the ego, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to work hard and then let the chips fall where they may. Like, how was the thought process back then of getting back into entrepreneurship if you loved it so much? Yeah, I really, um, you know, that was part of being able to connect to others was to, you know, keep the saw sharp and make sure that um, I was continuing to, 
uh, work my network. Right. So obviously being able to, you know, cause podcasting wasn't really a thing. And so it was, uh, since the format was interviews, it was the ability to connect to these folks and ask pressing questions that were allowing myself to move forward. And so I didn't have a time horizon with regards to like, okay, on such and such date, you know, in 2009, I want to get out of, you know, working for an agency and be back on my own. But during that time, I certainly did plant a lot of seeds, right? Like any opportunity that I had. Um, and I was fortunate at the time to be living in Los Angeles. So there were a lot of opportunities, you know, for entrepreneurial meetups and things of that nature, um, you know, to connect with folks that were doing the type of things that I wanted to do. And so um, it almost relinquished, you know, that um, immediate need to grab onto something, right? You take, you know, you allow yourself to step back and give yourself some space to really, you know, one, process what has happened because I did need to mourn that um, the second, you know, entrepreneurial venture was pretty, uh, you know, pretty big failure. Um, and, and then what kind of learnings, you know, were to come of that and also kind of check my ego, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then give myself the space to go, okay, well, you're not a complete failure because you did have the success and what do you want to do next? And so um, I think another thing that came out of that was knowing that whatever I was going to give back, if I was going to um, become an entrepreneurship again, I wanted it to contribute to um, the betterment of people. And that still hasn't changed. Hmm. Do you look back on that? Well, I get you, you called it a failure. So we'll use that terminology of the, of the, the restaurant venture. Do you look back and was it pretty clear after the fact of it wasn't going to work or were you caught completely off guard? So it was bad luck. I think um, the biggest lesson from that was knowing when to cut your losses. Right. So um, what had happened is when I started the marketing company, we engaged and, um, uh, with someone who was a really great landlord and organizing the commercial lease, um, was pretty straightforward. Right. And when we were ready to move on, um, we gave our notice and anytime there was an issue with the building, um, he would take care of it. I meant the relationship was very much like a residential lease. Um, what I learned the hard way, um, because I cut a lot of corners cause I probably bought in a little bit too much to Eric Reese and the lean startup movement um, was I didn't invest in a lawyer to read the lease I was getting into with regards to the, the first restaurant. Um, it was in Manhattan beach and um, it passed an initial inspection. I certainly didn't, uh, you know, cut corners there. Um, but what I didn't understand uh, was that when you get into a commercial lease, you're, it's essentially like renting a car. It's not like a residential lease where you have a lot of consumer protections. You're in essence agreeing that you're now taking ownership of this property until the lease is over. So anything that goes wrong within that building, unless you have prior um, you know, tenant concessions, is your responsibility. And what had happened is that the, the original inspector didn't realize that the sewer line um, from the street had actually rusted out. And so I got myself in a position where to repair the sewer line, um, right. You know, I found this out like two months before launch was going to be about $65,000 and basically take out, you know, the reserve that I had for, um, expanding the endeavor. And I was going to spend it all. 
And because, you know, again, I felt like I didn't want to have a loss and I was very A type. And I was also pretty ego driven coming off this pretty successful exit of the, the last company I couldn't lose. Right. And so fortunately, a friend of mine was an executive at Safeway, an old college friend, and he came in, you know, because at least I was wise enough to get counsel. Um, and I showed him my books and he goes, you're going to bankrupt yourself if you continue down this. You you might get lucky, but you're basically, you know, bringing your plane in for a landing and hopefully, you know, hoping that this damaged plane will, will come back off the ground. So if you want to lose everything, like, you know, your complete life savings over this little taco shack in Manhattan Beach, then be my guest. But this is an extremely bad business decision. Um and he left me with that, you know, like, do you want to make a good business decision or do you want to be ego driven, you know, and see if you get lucky. Um, and I, I had to check myself, right. I meant at the end of the day, what I value is good entrepreneurship, right. Business acumen. And so, yes, I didn't want to lose, but at the end of the day, I would have been a bad entrepreneur by making the decision to continue. And so, um, I used that money to buy myself out of the lease and lick my wounds and moved on. And that's a tough thing for for all of us to do. You know, I, I, Seth Godin calls that the you know the sunk cost fallacy. You know, if I if I recall, like just being able to, you know, you, whatever money you invested or time or energy, you're like, well, I've gone this far, might as well keep going. You know, instead of what you did, which it seemed like it maybe was the best choice, although it hurt a ton, oh was hey, let's let's get out from under this and start fresh. You know, yeah, yeah. And now with you know with a little bit of reframing and the power of hindsight. Those lessons, although expensive, are some of the best lessons ever, right? Because one, I never want to get myself in that position. So, um, you know, I'll always seek good counsel, um, and, you know, and invest up front, you know, to make sure that I don't take those types of, um, you know, hits later on down the road. And hands down, that's paid dividends. Um, and then to that type of humility, right? If I ever feel like I'm making an ego-driven decision, I'll check myself and then, um, you know, speaking of uh, wisdom from others, you know, I think it was Napoleon Hill in, in uh, thinking grow rich, right? I'll, I'll try and come up with this imaginary council of various friends and mentors that think differently than me and sort of role play, like, what would you do in this situation? And it allows me to get outside of my head, right? Because it's like, and then if three or four folks where I'm kind of trying to, you know, in a fanciful way, you know, pretend like I'm them, are like, this is so dumb. Why are you doing this? You know, it allows me to sort of, yeah, this is dumb, you know, and get outside of myself and make a, a, a more rational decision. So what were you going to do? I'm, I'm kind of curious. You, you obviously went and worked for corporate mail. Like, how did you decide? All right. Was there like, okay, I have this knowledge. Let me go look for these roles. Or did you have some, you know, friends or colleagues or former associates you can call up? Like, what was the, what was the plan? Yeah, I think there was some serendipity. Um, you know, I was, what I do is develop digital assets and there was a company that had a very entrepreneurial role. So um, uh, I've gotten into other entrepreneurial endeavors, but sort of moving forward, I've uh, leaned more into being an entrepreneur, you know, so sort of an entrepreneurial uh, in residence as it were. And so that's the role that I fell into. It was working for a company called Gen X, who's now been acquired by Meredith, you know, the big uh, publishing conglomerate. Um, and they wanted to launch Better Homes and Gardens again as a real estate brand. It had, uh, they had done it. I don't think Meredith had, but someone had tried um, to 
to launch it and had failed. And so they were trying to do it again. Um, a company called Realogy, that's a big real estate conglomerate that owns um, like Colwell Banker and Sotheby's. Um, and so they wanted, you know, another brand under their umbrella and they wanted someone to, um, you know, help QB that effort. And so it was a good role for me. You know, again, I was getting paid, um, you know, a- as an employee, but it allowed me to be entrepreneurial and really run the show with regards to the launch of that program. Well, and this comes back to, as you had mentioned, like you were, then you started this, this project, um, which I'm curious to, to learn more about, but um like you could do that on the side and you figure out like, all right, I kind of work and, and I, and I grow as an entrepreneur, as you said, and then I do things on the side. Cause I, you know, I think that's the one thing we all have the choice, right? You can decide to do the interviews and write the blog, do these other things. Other folks may decide to do something else with that time. Right. And it's, it's everyone's choice. So you just decide, Hey, I'm going to try to better my life and improve it and grow by utilizing these tools that were available at the time. Cause you know, 07 was still early, that was still early days of blogging and oh, for sure. I think interviewing and stuff on, like that. Yeah, I started on PostNuke. I, maybe WordPress was out at the time, but yeah. it was uh, certainly not the platform it was now. In fact, I think you know at that time it wasn't even meant. It was more a content management system, you know. And then it sort of got you know as it evolved into the powerful tool it is today. You know, it's obviously an amazing blogging platform, but. Um, you know, yeah, in 07, there were, you know, Drupal and PostNuke, there were, there were strong competitors. So I don't think I moved to WordPress for a while. Uh, blogging has always been fun for me. I find it, um, you know, it's just a neat way to get your thoughts out of your head and connect with, uh, other folks. So had you always, yeah. Cause obviously that's something I do consistently and enjoy doing as well. Like writing, I never thought about this. You know, if you ask my English teachers from high school, they'd be like, you, you write, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but, but I'm always curious to other f- folks that write, like, did you, was that a new thing for you or had you always written to kind of get your thoughts out and you're like, wait a minute, there's this platform. Let me go this route. Nope. It started. Um, so there's a longer story to that, uh, restaurant, uh, adventure. And, um, but it started as a daily, uh, journal on PostNuke. So my intro to blogging was, Hey, I'm going to launch this restaurant within 365 days. I'll log every single day. Mm. Um, and I look back at some of the posts cause you can find it on archive.org and I'm at, it wasn't good, you know? Um, so no, what were you writing about? Like, just like, Hey, I, I got this relationship today or Hey, we put in the kitchen to like, what was the, it was just yeah, that's exactly the it. like, Hey, you know, like here's a little tidbit. I got off, you know, the internet. And so let me extrapolate this wisdom through a lens of not having much wisdom myself. <laughs> you know, a lot of, uh, I think, you know, when anyone gets started, we tend to regurgitate what we learn because that's an amazing way, right. To, to share it and see how it resonates with other folks. And as you're developing, you know, your own acumen, um, you know, sharing the thoughts of others is a way to say, oh, does this stick? You know, is it even interesting to me? Do I want to shape it? Um, so, yeah, you know, it, you already paid homage to Seth to some degree. You know, Seth's been singing that tune for a long time. I got to see him in 2000 uh, when I was working for Universal, or I think it was actually even before then, you know, but he's been uh, telling folks to write every day for a long time, right? I, not able to do that anymore. I like to, um, write long form content. So I'll tend to like 
you know, put something together, play with the outline for quite some time. Um, but, you know, writing every day when you're first getting started, I think is an amazing way to sort of cut your teeth, especially, you know, if you want to grow as a writer, I mean, you know, like any, um, form of mastery, you know, the more practice you get in, the better you're going to be. Yeah. And I, and I even find, I don't know if, if you agree with this or, or do this at all, but I, you know, to that point, cause I, I write, I probably write every day. Um, sometimes it's very intentional, but other times I like to at least break it down as if I'm thinking it's actually writing. So it might be a thought or an idea that comes in my head. It might not be fully fledged out, but just writing a few words or a sentence sparks a writing or a piece of content or, or something, you know? So I think just being in thought has allowed me to write more clearly and articulate a message more versus just sitting down and be like, all right, I'm going to pump this out whether I like it or not. I don't take that approach to it, but I do let my mind kind of wander in order to drudge up ideas that maybe I wouldn't have come up otherwise. I don't know if you're the same way or not. Yeah, I think I'm more in line with that, but I certainly know a lot of my friends benefit from the former. So one of the things, um, and I actually get into this in the book, that I think oftentimes is really hard for folks to understand that any of these methods you know, whether you call them tactics, strategies, interventions are only going to work for a subset of people, right? So I think there are folks that um, benefit greatly from waking up and just forcing themselves to write 300 to 400 words, right? And then they can coalesce those words at some point. Um, there are others like you and, and myself, it sounds like, where, um, you know, I, to my left, I have about 40 post-it notes. And because, that's just, you know, my process. And then at some point I'll put them in a mind mapping software and, you know, I'll bring things together. I'll do my own research, you know, use Evernote and then kind of coalesce, you know, uh, empirical findings with my own thoughts and try and, you know, either bring out a hypothesis to sort of throw out to the audience or figure out if there's a nugget in there, you know, that's worth playing with. But all that said, when things are, when you're trying to share knowledge, oftentimes that knowledge is only going to be valuable for a subset of folks. Mm -hmm. And that's okay, right? So the way you and I write, not having to do it every day, because you oftentimes see, you know, I follow a lot of authors on Instagram, mm -hmm. you know, they'll say you have to do it this way, right? Like if you're not writing 300 to 400 uh, words, you know, right when you wake up, um, you're not a writer. I don't, I fundamentally don't believe that's true. Like if your process means, um, you know, that you're carrying a notepad in the, in the back of your pocket and you're writing down, you know, using the more uh, Liz Gilbert, you know, catching the tiger by the tail, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, that method, I think, is equally uh, as effective as long as it's a habitual practice, right? Um, so I hope that answers your question. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, I, I, yeah, I agree with that. I think, and I, and I think that actually, you know, what's interesting, and this maybe gets into the book and, and, you know, the word fun, which, which I'm curious to learn your thoughts more about, but just the whole idea of like, what you I, and this is this took me a long time you know you see certain things like even like you mentioned tim ferris earlier who's one of the guys i followed early on uh podcasting and uh was was it i call it an influence for me to start podcasting um you know four and a half years ago or whatever now it's been um but i'm not going to do it the way tim does it but for a long time and i think this is just the you know, way i was brought up or whatever it's like you feel like oh so and so is doing it this way or oh, all right let me kind of idolize and do it that way 
But what I've realized is, no, I could use those, like you'd mentioned, you can kind of use some of those things, you can think about it, you could, you can learn from them. But then you have to do it your own way, like you write long form, I, although every once in a while, I'll write a long form piece, I'm a very much micro blog, Seth Godin ask, if you will, you know, like, if folks know that, like that very short, like, I, I want someone to be able to read it in under two minutes. I, I, I want to dispel thoughts that way. That's how I think that's how I move, but you want long form, which is, again, there's, there's avenues for all of it. I just think it's for folks listening in, it's whatever way is best for you. And that's the thing is to own what you want to do, you know? Yeah. And I think what you want to attract, right? So um, there's two ways to go about writing, right? And this is wisdom that I picked up along the way. It's certainly not original thought, but are you writing for, fun, right? For pleasure. If that is absolutely be as experimental as you want, there's absolutely no reason unless you're trying to be playful with the way that, um, you know, you're developing your craft to not do it, right? If you're doing it to try and reach an audience, then one of the best ways is to first decide what type of audience you're wanting to attract and then be somewhat empathetic to how they want to consume content, right? For me, at least my original audience were folks that really wanted to understand the science. And you're not going to do that in 200 words, right? Like um, at the very least, I need to provide a little bit of exposition with regards to what the study means, because these are people that want the facts, right? They don't want just my opinion. And so um, that was the type of audience I was trying to attract, right? I think um, the latter, is, there is an important distinction that if you're writing for others, you certainly need to be empathetic about how they want to consume content. Um, so anyways, that's my opinion on that. Well, and so getting in the book a little bit, because I'm always curious, especially as an author, you know, myself, I like to, even though it's, you know, it's children's books, it's a little different. I'm getting to the point of longer form. Um, you know, as an author, I kind of look at it as there's so many different ways to write. There's so many different ways. Again, ideation happens. I'm curious with this book, one, I think you mentioned it earlier that maybe it was, you know, the, the passing of your younger brother that kind of maybe transitioned you onto probably writing the book or at least going in that direction. Can you share a little about the process of actually deciding to write a book, how you went about that process and then kind of getting into the actual writing of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I published a dissertation, right? So my, you know, what I gained a lot of mastery in was writing academically. Um, and right before my brother passed away, I had finished my dissertation. So there was a little bit of idle hands, right? I had gone through this two-year process of writing, you know, 180 page um, manuscript um, and, uh, you know, now wanted to continue down that path. Um, I guess to make a long story short, what happened was, uh, I'm a charter member of the IPPA. It's the International Positive Psychology Association. And so I had been studying positive psychology for quite some time up until then. Mm -hmm. um, and when my younger brother passed away, the tools that had been helping me up until that point started to fail. And so being a good researcher, I had, you know, dug into PubMed and other sources um, to kind of start trying to figure out what happened and realize that there was a big research gap with regards to action oriented approaches, you know, most of happiness requires introspection, you know, even the concept with regards to happiness within psychology, we call it subjective well-being, right requires 
um, some sort of quantified instrument to be able to, you know, ask you some questions and get a numeric score about your happiness. And, but there wasn't a lot being talked about with regards to folks that were using things like social determination theory and their own agency and autonomy to kind of take charge, especially in times where maybe happiness wasn't the right emotion. You know, like for me, mourning my brother's death wasn't necessarily appropriate to be happy. And so that process of kind of trying to figure out, um, you know, my own situation and realizing that there was this research gap uh, really led to, um, you know, me formulating some ideas down and slowly but surely, like, you know, growing as a second dissertation, as it were. Mm. Um, the kind of next chapter of that, and it's funny because not a lot of people have asked this, so is that that first attempt really wasn't good. Like, so it goes back to me eating my own dog food where nobody would have wanted to read that book, right? It was so deep in research and like, you know, it, it would have been good as a sleep aid, but if, um, you know, and so I got connected with some really good people. So a lot of times, you know, success involves serendipity, um, but they're like, you really have something here, but, you know, you're going to need somebody to help you, uh, you know, make it more approachable to others. And so I was connected with a guy by the name of uh, David Moldauer. Um, he's called a developmental editor. Um, I guess they're, they're far and few between, but there are some really good ones out there. And he was able to, you know, take my work and say, hey, this is what we need to do to fix it, which is primarily adding personal story and anecdotes. Um, and with his help, was able to, you know, set, sell the proposal to Simon & Schuster. And that's where we're at today. So and so the book, and it's supposed to launch in early 2023? Yeah, January 3rd, 2023. Okay, so you have the launch date. So, yeah. so is the book written and all edited and all done? Yeah, yeah, it's in the can. So it was supposed awesome. to come out in June, and then um, the publishing industry got hit with every like every other industry with supply chain issues. So this zero tolerance in China means no one's manning printing presses. So a lot of books, especially first time authors, um, are getting pushed out to next year because they just don't have the capacity to print books right now. Mm. So what's the so if someone's gonna pick this up or pre order at some point and, and eventually get it? What's the premise? So, so is the goal that there's actually some, you mentioned action oriented, meaning you're not just going to read stuff and like, oh, it's fluffy. That's nice. There's actually some, some items in here to, that you can go in and change yeah. yourself maybe to improve. Yeah. So I unpack sort of the Western uh, concern over happiness and some of, um, you know, what's been unearthed with regards to how that's problematic. You know, we now know that folks that are overly concerned about happiness um, tend to perseverate on the gap from of where they are and where they want to be and expend energy kind of worrying about that rather than using that energy to do things. So the book's really about how do you repurpose that energy, right, into indexing things that are bringing in more delight and joy into your life so that as you index more experiences of things that are fulfilling, um, you tend to see that it, you know, it's an upward spiral because you're like, oh, wait, I actually do have more domain over my life than I thought. And, you know, you, you slowly grow into finding ways to one, use your time more wisely, but then also things that, um, you know, are habituated activities. Like for me, you know, childcare and things of that nature, how, you know, with, um, pretty low level tools, how can you change things that, you know, before seemed like a sense of duty or might not have been, 
very pleasurable? How can you change them into activities that actually do, you know, um, bring in more fun to your life? Yeah, because I looked at it and, and that's why I was like, well, maybe we'll differ, maybe not, you know, because I look at happiness from like, and I'm, I, it, I bet it's closer, we're probably closer in line than maybe we think actually, because I look at it as, yes, I think a lot of the stuff out there, the happiness or, hey, become happy, there's no um, foundation in it. I'm a big believer that we have no one defines happiness. And I think that's the problem. It's like, oh, I want to be happy. Well, what does that actually mean? No one's defines it. So it's like it's it's the same as I almost think I don't know your thoughts on this, but very synonymous with success. Like, oh, look, so and so successful. Well, how do we know they're successful? Do they think they're successful? Why? Because they have money or status or like what define, you know, like, is that your definition of success or, you know, so I, I think if we start defining happiness and again, maybe this is similar to like, Hey, if we have these experiences, it starts to allow us to say, all right, is it in this category or that? Um, that's how I think of it at least is like, we have to have a definition internally of what we actually believe. And then we can make those decisions to be able to go in one direction or another. We can choose to do things or not do things based on that. But if we have no basis, we're lost. I don't know yeah. if that's similar to where, where, where no, you're No, it's spot on. I mean, I certainly still value happiness as a construct. You know, I think we should all feel secure and feel like we're living a fulfilled life. Mm-hmm. But you hit on while it, why it's problematic, right? One, um, it's part of the human condition to, um, again, you know, it's called subjective well-being for a reason, right? A lot of um, how it's derived is based on happenstance, right? Like what neighborhood do we happen to live in? So who do we compare ourselves to, right? And another thing is from an evolutionary standpoint, we adapt to things that are pleasurable for good reason, right? If we're satiated all the time, we're absolutely going to have no motivation, right? So um, it's been talked about before, but I think a lot of folks um, aren't aware that, Uh, we now know that dopamine isn't really the pleasure neurochemical that we thought it is. Um, What dopamine really does, and this has been studied, is is a tool to help motivate us so it's pleasurable, but it happens before the actual event happens, right? So when you see these dopamine spikes, um, it's been studied well in folks that gamble. That pleasurable, or, or at least the release of the chemical, happens before um, the wheel actually ends up, uh, um, you know, whether you won or lost, right? And then the sense of relief, if you have one, is experienced as emotional, you know, sort of excitement, but the release of dopamine happens before. Mm-hmm. And so um, what that's been tied to is the fact that we got excited because we needed to do certain things, right? Like procreate or eat, you know, so all these things we perceived as enjoyable, but they were really these, uh, um, you know, sort of feel goods to get us to do the things we needed to do to be able to survive. Most of our biological systems had been set up that way. Where fun's a little bit different is that if you approach it mindfully, you can really figure out like, what are the things that I actually like to do and then enjoy them. So you're not going to get that same buzz, you know, that dopamine buzz, Mm -hmm. but you're going to get a a better feel, a connectedness to whatever it is that lights you up, whether that's a partner, whether that's the, you know, the act of writing, which is an enjoyable activity for you. For my brother, it was hiking in nature. For a lot of folks, it's connecting to something spiritual. But we know that when it's something that's more in line with things that really light you up, so it's not something that you're anticipating, 
but something that you could do, um, you know, for a longer period of time that those, those are the real things that sort of, you know, fill you up in your life. What about the, the other side of the coin on if something's not pleasurable or not fun at the beginning, but you're doing it to like learn and like being a beginner learner, I kind of think about again, it's something I've tried to do so much the last few years is like, I don't want to say be dumb, but like, that's the best vocabulary where I can think of It's like almost going to like, I don't even know anything about this, but I might not enjoy it up front, but then learning more about it, it becomes more fun or more enjoyable. Where's the gap? Is there a gap like to give yourself enough time to try things? I'm curious how, what, what the stance is on that or how you think about that. Yeah. So the way I tend to divvy things up is um, I use something called the play model, right? So uh, emotion is arousal and valence, right? And so not to get too geeky in the silence or excuse me, this, the science, but um, you know, valence are things that we enjoy uh, when, our, when it's on the positive side and on the negative side of valence are things that we don't enjoy. Right. And so if something is so unenjoyable, we're not going to start it, then that's problematic, right? So you might want to figure out how you're going to enjoy it. But if it's something where there's a particular amount of friction or inertia that you need to overcome, um, how can you perhaps make that more pleasurable? Or if not, how can you put your mind knowing that in a future state, you are going to be more pleasurable and that often will help you get over the hump. Mm. And then sometimes, you know, you're now seeing like, especially with uh, endurance sport, um, folks classifying things as type one fun, type two fun, and type three fun. Um, you know, some things are fun in retrospect, right? So oftentimes, like I think I said, uh, or no, we didn't talk about it, but um, I used to be an Ironman athlete, right? And so mm-hmm. there are certain parts of the race that were grueling, right? So if you ask me in that moment, um, am I having fun? I wasn't, but now looking back on it, you know, the corpus of time where I can relish that really fun memory because I got through it, it was absolutely worth it to do that. And so you often see that with parenting as well, right? Like a lot of times, you know, parenting children can be grueling, but when you look back at it, the ability to savor those memories actually gives you more longitudinal joy than, you know, that sort of episodic moment of agony. So I don't know if that answers your question, but um, no, it does. Yeah. I think it gives you an opportunity as, as you're saying is to, again, kind of looking at it from a different perspective where what I thought of as you were, as you were saying, that was like, if you, if you're like, Oh, I do not want to go out and run. I gotta, I gotta exercise. But I don't want to go on a run. Okay. Well maybe try to play tennis. You're still getting activity. You're still, you know, but maybe it's a different level of, you know, that's kind of what I thought about is like, try, how do you come in from the back door maybe, right? Instead of the front door, like what are different ways you can think about the problem um, and ultimately try to enjoy activity? I I don't know. Maybe that's a a wrong way to look at it. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, That's the, uh, that's the exact right approach, right? And so uh, this work comes from uh, Caitlin Woolley out of Cornell, but um, you know, if you're not having fun in the gym, but your main motivation is to uh, you know, improve your well-being in some fashion. Yeah, why aren't you asking yourself, "Am I in the right activity?" Right? Or if it's uh, if you find thing, you know, that the activity itself is grueling, is there something that you can bundle with it to make it more fun? So, for instance, if you don't really enjoy running, but 
or, or maybe it's just sort of a passive activity. Why not try listening to a podcast or music, you know, or um, trying out different modalities of it, right? Like, um, so there's all sorts of different things that you could do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think back, this is, it's always hard to ask one thing. You said you have all those post-it notes. Maybe something's on there. Yeah. Um, but let, you know, when you, when you think about, all right, someone's asking me, how do I get started? And maybe it's with writing. It could be with, you know, an entrepreneurial journey, whatever, maybe just thinking differently. Is there any, um, anything you've learned along your journey that's been the most impactful? Maybe that helps you to keep moving forward when you get down, or maybe advice you like to share the most often that's been rewarding for a lot of folks. Yeah, I think it's really self-experimentation, right? So again, it goes back to what we touched on earlier. And that is um, if you're engaged in something and it's not necessarily where you want it to be, being able to peel back, like what are the constructs of that particular thing that I could either improve or is it something that I should abandon altogether, right? And so like at a low level, it could be if you're reading a book and it's you're like, man, this book just really isn't that good. And you've gotten into like three chapters questioning yourself, do I still need to be reading this book? Right? Like so often, especially a type people, once we get something started, we feel like we can't abandon it, even if it's not presenting us, you know, with any value or pleasure. And so kind of questioning, you know, why you're doing something in the first place. And it's something that you absolutely need to be doing. What are the constructs of it that you can play with? You know, whether that's mental, like reframing, like I'm doing this because I know at the end of the day, it's going to be for my own betterment. Or are there things that I could do where I could make it more pleasurable? Like, I really hate this weekly meeting with my team because it's in, you know, an environment that I really hate. What happens if we were to take it out, you know, of uh, inside environment and, and, you know, do it as a walking meeting? Something as simple as that, right? And once you start to, um, you know, play with your activities in that way, then you can, um, you know, everything starts to improve because, you, you know, you're sort of questioning the components of it and, um, you know, you're getting it to be better. Yeah. No, I love that. And I, again, it just goes back to being able to reflect a little bit what's working well, what's not being okay. If thing, I, I think this is the biggest lesson I've learned in, in this conversation was like, just being okay with saying, I want to stop or pivot to another path. Like it's okay. It's not that you're quitting or failing necessarily. It's that you're just tweaking and you're just trying something a little different and maybe it, it's a better outcome that other direction, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. So if folks are listening in and maybe they're listening well before the book launches, can they pre-order? Where can they say hello to you? Get, what's the, what's the oh, details? Thanks so much. Yeah. So it's available on Amazon right now. Um, so anyone that wants to, or any bookstore really, uh, you know, I hate to keep plugging Amazon, but wherever you buy your books, yeah, it's available for pre-order. And then, um, if you're interested in the science of fun, I'd love to have you, uh, take a look at my website, um, michaelrecker.com. Awesome. Mike, this has been a, a blast. I really enjoyed that. I always love when these kind of just go on some random conversations. So <laughs> thanks so much for joining and uh, appreciate your time. Hey, everyone, just one more quick thing before you skip along in your day. You know, if you do enjoy this content or other things that I've put out or just enjoy learning more and trying to adapt your thinking uh, to become happier each and every day, there's a couple of things that you may benefit from. Um, if you go to my website, brianandreco.com forward slash subscribe, you can sign up for my newsletter that goes out once a week. And that's really a digest of a lot of information that I gather throughout the weeks, whether it's a new video that I think could be informative or a podcast that's 
that's been valuable to me, book that I might read, etc. Um, secondly, I blog three times a week, and these are more micro blogs, one to five minute reads, short digestible blogs that'll send right to your inbox on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning. So check that out on my website, brianandraco.com forward slash subscribe if you think it's something you might enjoy. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.